What's up, Accelerators? Welcome to Normalize It, the show where we speak about and explore the business of disability inclusion and accessibility. I'm your host, Cam Baudouin, and on each episode, I'll be interviewing leaders, professionals, and people with lived experiences, and we'll be discussing the challenges, successes, and strategies on how to make this world a more inclusive place. As you know, many organizations are still trying to figure out disability inclusion through a trial and error method. That's inefficient. Stick around to the end of the show to find out how we can fix that. So whether you're an advocate, entrepreneur, business owner, stakeholder, VP, or just someone who's interested in the world of disability inclusion, this show is for you. Let's dive into it. Derek, welcome to the show. What's up? How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to finally be here, finally talking with you. Yeah, yeah, this is great. This is a long time coming. We talked a little up. Long time ago, I think uh, even in oh, 2022, yeah. we started talking about this topic, and I don't think anyone has spoken about you know some of these topics ever before. Uh, none that I've ever heard of. This is brand new to me, so I, I love what we're going to talk about today. Before we get started, I know there's something that you need to cover just before we get started mm-hmm. here. Yeah. So since I work for a court, I have to say I can't get too political in anything that I say. Um, and then also, since I work for a court, I have to say that anything I talk about here. Is only from me and doesn't reflect my current or former employers. Great. Thanks for that. So to get started here, first, I want to know what's a common yet incorrect assumption that many people have around disability rights from your angle? Mm-hmm. So for me, one thing that has come up multiple times as I've given lectures is that a lot of people assume that disabled people have the same level of constitutional protections as other classes of individuals. And because they'll say things like, oh, how did eugenics happen? How is that not unconstitutional? And then they'll hear about other things that have happened to the disability rights group as well. And I have to say the constitution doesn't really protect people with disabilities the same that it protects other classes of people. As one of my friends once said, um, the fight for disability rights in the, the US hasn't been much to enforce the constitution as much as it has been a fight to get around the U.S. Constitution. That is really interesting, especially myself as a Canadian, learning more about this. And I know I have a large audience in the U.S. right now listening who is really interested to hear more about um, one thing, which is uh, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Mm -hmm. Now, you you wrote an article uh, that Mm -hmm. was on the, uh, the 50th anniversary, right, of the Rehabilitation Act? Yes. So why don't yes. we just get into that a little bit here? Because even myself, mm-hmm. I need to brush up on learning what it is, how it works, who it covers, and things like that, why it was created. Mm-hmm. So why don't we even just start there? Okay, so before 1973, we had a collection of statutes collectively known as the Vocational Rehabilitation Act. And they did some stuff to protect disability rights. A lot of it was directed towards veterans and getting them back to work, that sort of thing. But thanks to people like Judy Human, who has since passed away, we realized that more was needed as a society to accommodate people with disabilities. And so we got the disability rights movement, and eventually we had the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 passed. It was vetoed once by Nixon. Judy Human and her allies protested, and it was eventually signed into law. Now, what the Rehab Act is, it's not just an anti-disability discrimination law. It's an omnibus piece of legislation that is massive. I am very lucky to have read the full thing. And if you look at my article, the Rehabilitation Act at 50, which I've submitted it somewhat for publication consideration, not much. But if you look at it, I go through step by step what each section does. 
So it creates some committees. It prohibits discrimination in some federal contracting. But the most important part of the Rehab Act is tacked on at the very end, which statutorily is 29 U.S.C. Section 794. But it's collectively known as Section 504. And what 504 does is it says that no recipient of federal financial assistance can discriminate against people with disabilities. And that one section opened the floodgate, so to speak, for Mm. legal disability rights advocacy. But as with all things in disability rights, it wasn't immediately impactful. Why? Mm. Because they needed regulations to be signed to enforce it. So the Nixon administration set on it, the Carter administration set on it, and then eventually the Carter administration basically had to face off against a group of people with disabilities to sign it. So Judy Human once again, put together a group of people and they occupied a federal building in San Francisco. And for, was it almost 30 days, they occupied this federal building. The FBI was trying to get rid of them. The U.S. government was trying to get rid of them, but they had a lot of help. This is one of those instances where multiple groups of people came together to help the disability rights movement. So what wound up happening, you had people like Jefferson Airplane show up to help out. You had the gay rights community show up and help out. And you had the Black Panthers show up and feed the protesters. At one point, um, the government shut off the phones. And so they actually communicated with sign language to people on the outside. Eventually, they would go to Washington, D.C. to continue protesting. And without any pomp and circumstance, the 504 regulations were signed. Then litigation was able to be brought and a lot of things would eventually change. That is the coolest story I think I've heard about this whole thing in in such a long time. You know, I had no idea. Big part of what I talk about and a big part of what I know many people, we were just at CSUN last week and a big conversation Mm -hmm. is where's the community? Like, where do we learn from other uh, advocacy groups? And you just mentioned the gay rights groups and the Black Panthers. And historically, if they were supporting the disability rights movement or the disability uh, groups, then we still can learn from them. We can still go and participate Mm -hmm. in these other advocacy groups and learn and say, what are they doing right? What are we doing right? Because it sounds Mm -hmm. like all advocacy has a lot of roots in the same in the same place, and mm-hmm. that was that was really really uh, interesting. Um, now, something else that you wrote. Now, you talked about some the three specific cases as some of the most mm-hmm. damaging and detrimental towards people with disabilities. I know even just before the show, you said you did a two and a half hour lecture on all three of the cases. Is that is that what happened? We don't have two and a half yeah. hours here today. Maybe we'll do an after yeah. show sometime of that. But it would be really interesting to hear like a very, very highlight of a summary of those three cases. And I want to start getting into some details and I'll kind of ask you along the way. Is that is that all right? Okay. Yeah, that is perfectly fine. So the first case, well, before I say that, the, the article is entitled The Disability Rights Anti-Canon. Hmm. And that comes from an article written by Professor Jamal Green in the Harvard Law Review called The Anti-Canon, where he looked at the all-time worst cases issued by the U.S. Supreme Court. And they are Dred Scott, Plessy, Lochner, and Korematsu. What's missing from there are any disability rights cases. Hmm. And there are three disability rights cases that are heavily criticized in scholarship. And they are Buck B. Bell, Penhurst, and Garrett. And so what I did is I went and looked at the uh, features that are in common 
with these disability rights cases and the traditional anti-canon and said, all right, which ones share enough to be considered mm -hmm. alongside those? And they are Buck B. Bell, Pennhurst Part 2, and Board of Trustees of the University of Alabama versus Garrett. All right. So why and, don't we just start with, uh, you said Buck is, is the first, 1927, mm -hmm. right? All right. Yes. Why don't we start that? What, so, what was that case? And, and yeah. Mm -hmm. So Bug v. Bell takes place at the in the eugenics era. So eugenics was this scientific theory that you could breed out negative qualities within a society, poverty, disability, that sort of thing. And built into eugenics was racism. It was explicitly racist. They, they said some groups of races were necessarily less evolved than others. And as one of my dissertation panelists pointed out to the eugenicist, certain races, black people, Jewish people, were necessarily, quote unquote, disabled. And it's shocking to me that Buck remains good law. And to me, uh, Buck is still important to me because I have an inherited disability. And both of my, neither of my parents finished high school. And my father had a disability where he never learned how to read. And we were in an impoverished economic state. Uh, I lived in a minivan as a kid for some time. Mm. So for me, the eugenicists would have openly advocated for my extermination. Right. And that came to a head in a case called Buck v. Bell. So in Buck, uh, at the time Buck was decided, eugenics was basically dead. Every eugenics law in the country had been struck down as unconstitutional as violating the Equal Protection Clause or other provisions of the U.S. Constitution. But the U.S. Supreme Court ruled otherwise in a five-paragraph opinion that cited only one case said that eugenics was constitutional and expressly said that eugenics was preferable. And the facts of Buck v. Bell are probably the most important thing to talk about here. Carrie Buck was born into poverty in Virginia. Her mother was taken away and put into a colony for the epileptic and feeble-minded mm -hmm. because she was poor and a woman. Carrie was placed into foster care with a family known as the Dobbs. There, Carrie was raped by the nephew of her foster mother. She got pregnant, and then the colony said, oh, she's feeble-minded, and then had her placed into the colony. And there, the colony wanted to finally, in a last-ditch effort for the eugenicists, to have their statute constitutionalized. And so they made this trumped-up case for Carrie to be sterilized. And all along the way, they knew that this was all a lie, right? And the attorney that was representing her was not actually on her side. He was a board member to the colony. He approved the sterilization. He was part of the movement to get sterilization on the books. And he often appeared confused about who he was representing. Oh, and he was close friends with people sterilizing Carrie Buck and also worked with them on the uh, appeals and briefing. Wow. So it gets up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court, again, in a five-paragraph opinion, says that sterilization is not only okay, but it is preferable. And uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. writes in that opinion that three generations of imbeciles are enough. And then says that the equal protection argument in that case is the usual last resort of constitutional arguments. But in fact, we know that that was not true because every other eugenics law had been struck down as basically violating the equal protection clause. I could probably hear someone saying, well, that was, you know, almost 100 years ago now and how unevolved we mm -hmm. were as a society back then. 
And yet, uh, well, sorry, was there something else that you wanted to add to that? Because that was that oh, was a really I was going to go into the uh, what happened after. Yeah, Buck. yeah. Uh, so eventually, the U.S. Supreme Court would consider a case called Skinner v. Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and in Skinner, they say eugenic sterilization for some groups is unconstitutional, but expressly reaffirmed Buck continued to be good law. And in 1973, it was cited approvingly in Roe as a legitimate interest and state regulation that limited the right to privacy. It would be cited by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2001, approvingly. And then in Garrett, the final case we're going to talk about today, it was again cited by the U.S. Supreme Court as binding. Wow. And that's reaffirming. When you say that, and I'm not a lawyer, but that's reaffirming that this was good law, as you said, right? Yeah. And it's it's important to note here that everything the Nazis did, they got mm-hmm. from us, hmm. the, the United States, not necessarily Canada. The first eugenic laws on the books in Germany, they actually crafted it verbatim, a lot from the model legislation here in the U.S. Wow. And wow. the Nazis eventually cited Buck and Holmes by name at the Nuremberg trials. And when he was about to be executed, one of the uh, Nazi doctors screamed out into the crowd, how can the U.S. do this to us when we were just doing what your Supreme Court said was okay? Wow. Wow. And see, when we're talking about the whole us versus them movement or feelings or ideas, I mean, mm-hmm. it's rooted so deeply in our culture and our society, especially if mm-hmm. like, an, or legal industry, like let's say at a minimum, the, if the courts are saying yep. and approving of this back, for, you know, and, and earlier than this as well, but written into into decisions made afterwards, this is, you know, this is really the root of what we're what we're up against, I think, uh, or at least from a cultural or, or legal point of view. Yep. So it's important to note that it was super widespread. So even Helen Keller was a supporter of eugenics. And so mm. was W.B. Dubois. So it. The Roosevelt's were all supporters. The Carnegie's were all supporters. And in fact, for a while there, the only people that opposed it were the Catholic Church, some politicians and judges. And how is it? How did it actually change? Why was it struck down after some time? Well, it, it's never been struck down. It, mm. it still remains there. Eugenics is technically still the valid law of the land. It just got out of fashion. And wow. to some extent, as I, I explained in one of my articles, it's prohibited by uh, the Rehab Act and some aspects of the ADA wow. or well, some aspects that, of eugenics, right? All right, let's, let's move on to the next case because that was that was really eye-opening. The next case we want to talk about is Pennhurst versus Halderman, 1984, uh, which is after the Rehabilitation Act. And I, I guess I want to ask, did anything change? Did it change anything uh, for the cases afterwards? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you just want to give a summary first. Uh, maybe we'll start yeah. there. All right, yeah, I'll start with a summary, Pennhurst. So Pennhurst was a an asylum, a mental health asylum in Pennsylvania. And they housed adults and children. And the facts in Pennhurst were not disputed. There there were sexual assaults, there were beatings, malnutrition, and people's disabilities worsened while they were at Pennhurst. Pennhurst came up once before the U.S. Supreme Court in uh, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said a federal law meant to uh, protect people with disabilities wasn't privately enforceable. And so they remanded it to consider a state law at the time. And then in Pennhurst 2, it went back up and the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, you can't enforce state law against state actors in federal court and created what we now know as the Pennhurst Doctrine. And the effect of that 
was that this mistreatment that you saw in mental health asylums throughout the United States continued, even though there were state laws on the books saying you can't do this. And I know that there were state laws on the books saying you can't do this because for my dissertation, I went through and summarized every single disability rights law in all 50 states. Oh, wow. And these just largely went unenforced to some extent. Pennhurst would eventually shut down. Its effects continue to this day because what happens is if you're litigating in federal court, a lot of people won't bring state law claims. But if you do, what happens is it forces the state and the plaintiffs to litigate in both state and federal court. Okay. And that doesn't benefit anybody. That's the standard argument. And so on both sides of the aisle, what we have is people that wouldn't agree agreeing. Now, the, these cases can be so uh, can be so serious and so heavy. And I want to tell everyone right now that, you know, one of the good things about speaking to someone who has gone and done the research is that now we know of cases like this. And now I think that we can bring this into even our advocacy and our practice and our activism. I see some of my friends here who I know are very strong uh, activists for disability rights. And maybe this, I mean, this knowledge isn't even, um, it's too scholarly, uh, not lawyers. I don't know. I, 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 have a hard time reading these types of articles. I'm not trained on how to read these articles. And yet, mm. uh, when you boil it down like this, I'm I'm kind of shocked at words to hear some of these cases. So who who was Halderman? Because Penhurst was the institution. Who was Halderman? Halderman, she was a woman that was brought there. Uh, she, she was largely nonverbal, although she was able to speak before she came into the hospital, the, the asylum. And eventually, when she was there, she decompensated so bad she was no longer able to speak. She was abused, assaulted, and it was she represented the entire class of plaintiffs. Mm. So she was the name plaintiff in the case. And did was the decision? Uh, did the that decision end up helping close the Penhurst institution? Uh, was it was it wasn't the nail in the coffin or anything like that? No, no, it it didn't shut it down. It just continued on. It it, it would eventually settle. And mm-hmm. it would eventually close. And now the last one, which is actually pretty recent, um, which is Garrett, is only in 2001. And uh, why, don't, why don't we give a summary about that one and then mm-hmm. uh, and, and tell us what happened there. All right. So Garrett involved whether or not you can su- a state employee could sue the state for damages under the eight, Title I of the ADA. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 decision that there was an insufficient history of discrimination against people with disabilities to justify abrogating the state's sovereign immunity in ADA part, Title I cases. And so the effect of that decision was to basically deny relief to any state employee who is subject to disability discrimination. State employees specifically. Yeah. But it's been used to try and undermine other aspects of the ADA as well. So they said, well, since Title I doesn't abrogate sovereign immunity, Title II didn't either. And the U.S. Supreme Court would eventually rule years later that Title II of the ADA, you actually can still get damages against the states. The full scope of Title II and its damages remedies is now fully debated, and I can't really comment on what the what that's going to look like. And now you, you say t- Title I, Title II. Can you remind for the audience what those two titles are? What, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So Title I, the first part of the ADA, deals with employment discrimination. Title mm-hmm. II deals with all acts of government that discriminate against people with disabilities. And it applies regardless of whether or not 
they get federal funds. And now, so the institute, there, you said this is the institution of uh, Alabama. Sorry, you have to remind me of that again. Uh, so it was Board of Trustees of the University of Alabama versus Garrett. All right. And the Board of Trustees, they were And they it was were a denied. lawsuit against the which is an arm of the Okay. All right. And, and uh, why don't we go into that? Denied a, 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 a reasonable well. accommodation. She was a cancer patient and she wanted a reasonable accommodation for all of these things that she was going through. And it was denied. And then she sued for damages, uh, money damages, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to get that, you you have to, under the ADA, you have to sue the entity, right? Because you okay. can't sue an individual under the ADA. And so she has to sue the entity, but the entity there is the state. And the states are generally protected from lawsuits by a doctrine known as sovereign immunity. And sovereign immunity is one of the most complicated areas of the law. And if you want to know more about Garrett that we than we can possibly get into, even in my anti-canon article, I encourage all of y'all to go and look up this article. It's called Four Pathways of Undermining Board of Trustees of the University of Alabama versus Garrett. This is the title page is what you would see. Okay. All right. Um, and it goes into detail about all the factual mistakes and uh, doctrinal mishaps in that opinion. No, Four Pathways, Garrett. I'm sure right. we could, we could pull uh, that up. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I was going to say, to the court's credit, it was very clear very soon after that they were backing away from Garrett. And mm-hmm. Tennessee versus Lane ruled that the ADA, you can get damages for inaccessibility of courthouses. Mm-hmm. And then in 2006, they ruled in U.S. versus Georgia that you can get damages for failure to accommodate or make alterations in the prison setting under the ADA because they said the Eighth Amendment requires the same things in that context as the ADA, which is something that I I did not expect to hear. And it was written by Antonin Scalia, of all people, who at the time was probably the most conservative justice. Oh, interesting. So a conservative justice, oh, I mean, helped the case, it sounds like. What I want to say is that these are the, this is the type of information that we don't talk enough about in our industry, right? A lot of us focus a lot of our efforts on digital accessibility, and I don't think that's enough. I think that if we come up with and we are armed with this type of information, we can then inform our clients, our customers, our peers on what it truly means to either have a disability or what the historical um, uh, prejudice is against people with disabilities. Again, creating that us versus them is something that is a constant struggle in the world of disability inclusion and accessibility. And I think, and I believe that by knowing cases like this, and uh, I know Derek has is having some internet issues right now, but his article, his articles on this topic, um, uh, disability anti-canon, I'm going to try and put that in the show notes for later. It is it is uh, very well written. It is easy to read, which is, I know, sometimes difficult for scholarly articles or legal articles as well. It is something that you can digest and read about and then inform yourself and the people around you about this as well. Because Judy Human was somebody who created a movement. And I feel that we're not educating ourselves enough about these movements outside of, well, let's do the testing for this or let's fix our design system. There are more, there is more information that we can learn to move our industry forward. Wasn't that a great episode? You probably have lots of new ideas swirling through your head right now. Now, how are you going to go and teach that to your boss, your team, or your clients? You need a strategy to move forward. Contact me today, hi at cambodwine.com, and let's talk about how we can move this forward in your organization 
or individual practice. If you could right now, like and subscribe to this show, it really does help grow our reach to get more people involved and interested in disability inclusion and making the world a more inclusive place. And don't forget, you can also watch this show live on LinkedIn. Just find me there. It's every Friday at noon Eastern. See you next week.